thanks everyone for being here today. Uh, thank you, Mike, for that uh, very gracious intro. Um, I told him he could uh, totally make it up. Uh, so only 50% of that is true, we'll say. Uh, so I am the Cybersecurity Program Manager for uh, Department of Emergency Management. Um, I've been in this role for about a year. Um, some of you may have worked with my predecessor, uh, Mr. Isaac Janik, uh, if you remember him. Uh, I uh, have a, a really weird background. Uh, where I've, I've hopscotched from uh, private and public sector back and forth, uh, and I've worked in uh, disaster response, uh, IT, law enforcement, uh, a little bit of everything. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a jack of all trades and a master of not many uh, at all. So I'm going to talk to you today about cybersecurity and emergency management. Uh, as someone who is who has straddled the line of both, uh, my goal is to help uh, inspire you to why these two are coming together, whether we like it or not, uh, and what we can do to empower ourselves uh, as that does occur. So I don't think I am saying anything uh, revolutionary when I say that cybersecurity is an evolving threat. We are dealing with a variety of capable threat actors from different backgrounds, different motivations. Uh, we are dealing with continually sophisticated attack techniques. Uh, not to say that the old ones don't still work, and we'll touch on that in a little bit, uh, but we're also dealing with an expanding attack service. And this is the one that a lot of people forget about. As we add new technology, as we do cloud adoption, uh, and I can explain to the cloud what, if anyone doesn't know what that means, uh, the cloud is just someone else's computer, FYI. Uh, as we integrate new technologies, new tools, new services, all of that expands your attack surface a little bit, right? So you have more systems, more tools, more technologies that you're not just using to innovate, we want to innovate, but you also are now uh, inheriting the responsibility for protecting, for keeping secure. Likewise, uh, the world is evolving as well, uh, not just cybersecurity. Uh, and I think I'm, again, preaching to the choir a little bit when I say that we know that critical infrastructure is of key importance. Uh, we walk a fine line navigating the public-private relationships between public safety, government, uh, private sector critical infrastructure, uh, and how we can protect them. Cybersecurity is not going away. Uh, year after year, the numbers of cyber incidents go up. They are going in the wrong direction. Uh, despite decades of innovative security technology and new firewalls and password requirements, uh, it doesn't seem to be really working. And so further in this presentation, I'll talk about a little bit how we're trying to change the, the narrative, the discussion, away from cybersecurity towards something we'll call cyber resilience. And I think it's safe to say Virginia is no exception to this. Uh, a variety of incidents have impacted us. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with these, some of these might be new to you, uh, but suffice to say, there is no particular industry, sector, or area that is completely safe from cyber attacks. Likewise, emergency managers, you all, are dealing with a very complex scenario. You have, maybe I should say we, we all have hard jobs, right? And it's not easy. So I understand that when I come up here and say, this is one more thing I need you to worry about or care about or invest in, it's easy to say, well, hold on, we don't know if we have the resources, we don't know if the, we have the time, uh, we don't know if we have the people or the expertise, and that's fine. We're working to get you there. Uh, but the point is, uh, cybersecurity is hard, emergency management, in my opinion, is harder. Um, you guys deal with a lot of stuff, we deal with a lot of stuff, uh, dynamic widespread incidents, uh, COVID made everything much more complicated, uh, really just added fuel to the fire that we already navigate as is. Now, 2020 was a record-breaking year for emergency management. Uh, in the United States, uh, Hurricane Laura, the derecho and the Midwest fires, uh, the Western wildfires, uh, su substantial amounts of da damage, billions upon billions of dollars. Uh, but globally, it was also a really, really bad year for emergencies, uh, the volcano eruption in Malaysia, Chinese flooding uh, due to monsoons, uh, the earthquake in the Aegean Sea impacting uh, Turkey and Greece, again, uh, millions, uh, if not billions of dollars in losses and damages. So just like cybersecurity, the trend for emergencies, for billion dollar emergencies, is also going up. And so I bring this up to show that these are two problem spaces that are not getting better. And so we cannot wait. We cannot sit idly by and expect something to change. We must be proactive in our approaches. Uh, if you just want to see from 2020 to 2021, uh, the changes in billion dollar losses uh, uh, damages due to incidents, again, trending in the wrong direction. 
And so when we talk about what are the roles of a cybersecurity person, which I will affectionately just call as the nerds, and what are the roles of our emergency managers? And so I dug through all kinds of articles and, and pamphlets and FEMA materials. It was very boring, uh, but I tried to find some really interesting quotes that I thought captured the spirit of these two positions. And so I got this first quote about cybersecurity, describing it as, I'm gonna read it here, a process involving a flexible team with diverse skills, interests, and attitudes, operating within a networked world that will replace the fixed bundle of tasks done by any individual. Do you, who thinks that's a pretty solid definition of cybersecurity? You're comfortable with that definition or it makes sense to you? Show of hands. Good number of hands. On emergency management, I pulled this quote from someone who dealt with a huge disaster emergency in their area. Until you've experienced something like this, you don't realize just what can happen, just how serious it can be. I had no intuitive idea on how to move forward when it happened. Who think that, who believes that that captures some of the essence of an emergency manager or why we do emergency management, to help people in that scenario? Show of hands. Lots of hands. Now, I'm a little bit of a jerk, if I didn't warn you. Uh, I lied. These quotes are flipped. So that first quote was a quote on emergency management from uh, Dr. Springer from the, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, all the way back in 2009, talking about what the future of emergency management could and should look like. And that bottom quote was the CEO of Maersk, one of the largest transportation shipping companies in the world, top four shipping company, describing how he felt when they were hit with a ransomware attack. One of the largest shipping companies in the world, a company that cannot afford not to function, was brought to its knees by a Russian-inspired cyber attack, uh, a little deja vu, I guess, um, and that was his description. And so, again, I do this to show these roles, these functions, are a lot more similar than we realize, and we share a lot of the same goals, aspirations, and operational concepts. So let's talk about the threat landscape. Let's level set a little bit on what we're trying to navigate in this, in this complex, evolving world we're in. And so one of the things we're really trying to focus on, uh, not just in Virginia, but uh, throughout the cybersecurity world, is attention to what we call disruptive cyber incidents. And so historically, we think 30, 40 years ago, bad guys, malicious cyber actors, their focus was mischief, mayhem, chaos, just being generally annoying. Uh, fast forward a decade, and we saw bad guys focused on individuals, harassing people, making money. Ransomware started proliferating, but it was focused on people, ransomwareing your, ransoming your personal computer to mess with your data and get 100 bucks, 500 bucks. Then bad guys realized too small, too much effort for low payment. They moved on to targeting companies, small and medium businesses. There was a, a stretch of time where in Virginia, dozens of companies actually went out of business, pizza shops, coffee shops, because they were hit with ransomware attacks and had no financial way to recover. Eventually, bad guys realized again, small potatoes, not worth the time. Now they target big, large companies, enterprises. They don't really care about us as individuals anymore because we're just, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And so they want to cause pain for people who have lots of money to pay them. And so what we're seeing now, the trend that we are literally in the middle of right now, is no longer just focusing on disruption or theft of data, though that is still very much what they do. It is now focused on adding to that a disruptive element, causing a physical consequence in the real world based on what you do. So I think Colonial Pipeline, we all hopefully should be very familiar, roughly familiar with that. That was a cyber incident causing physical cascading impacts in the real world that many of you probably had to deal with. But that was just one of many. The JBS meatpacking uh, company was also hit with a ransomware, impact, uh, ransomware attack, disrupting operations, and many people did not notice, but it actually caused an increase in the price of meat throughout North America. There was the Massachusetts Steamship Authority, again, probably didn't pick up on it in Virginia, was hit with a ransomware attack, had to stop operations for three days, so no one could use those ships. And there is one that is still being researched right now. Uh, we don't know what company it is because it has not been released, uh, but there is a steel mill in Germany 
I was hit with a cyber attack so disruptive, it disabled the safety controls on the furnace, blasted it to its max physical temperature, and literally melted the facility, caused irreparable permanent damage. They had to scrap and rebuild. Suffice to say, bad guys are not just motivated, but very capable in causing these types of disruptive incidents. Likewise, we have security researchers who go out there and try to find these things before bad guys do. There's a couple researchers from Asia who traveled all around Southeast Asia and parts of Europe showing that you could easily hack construction cranes and take them over and force them to operate remotely without the knowledge of the owners. Even in Virginia, back in around 2014, 2015, they did a research project on state police cruisers to show that a motivated person inside that vehicle could hack and take control of the vehicle enabling remote access to someone outside of the car, uh, all the way to the point of being able to turn off the engine, disengage the drivetrain, all these things, uh, without the control of the driver. Now, the public safety space is no exception to this. And so we have seen fire departments repeatedly hit. We've seen uh, police departments, we've seen local government, we've seen cascading impacts. And one of the things we forget is that as public safety, on the public safety side, we often have computers, networks, or systems that are integrated with our government partners or sometimes our regional partners. And so an attack on them or a compromise on them is potentially a compromise on you. Likewise, if you are hit with an incident, your peers, partners, and interconnected networks are also at risk. And so you must remember, it's not always about you. It is about what you are connected to and what data you are touching. We talk about motivation. I won't dive into it too much, but I will tell you that a lot of people think that many of these attacks, many of these incidents are really being driven by super advanced, crazy hacking techniques that are using and abusing flaws in systems. And while that's the fun part of cybersecurity, it accounts for such a small percentage of what we actually deal with. The vast majority of incidents, nine out of 10 incidents, are caused by human error. Someone clicking a link, someone downloading software they shouldn't be, someone visiting websites they should not be on. It is people making mistakes. Whether or not those people are at fault is irrelevant. It is human-centric error that is leading us to many of these cyber incidents that could be avoidable. And if that wasn't concern enough, cyber terrorism continues to remain uh, an area of concern from the public safety side. And in fact, we've seen reporting multiple times, this is just one of my one of the easiest ones to share from an open source perspective, uh, that cyber terrorists in the Middle East and other parts of the world are not only interested, but specifically motivated in targeting 911 systems, public safety agencies, first responders for cyber attacks because of the potential for those real world physical consequences. And I talked about the growing attack surface and in the public safety space, we are, uh, potential victim just like many others. And so as we grow interconnected technologies, as we add uh, drones and wearable cameras, uh, body cams, connected vehicles, tablets and surfaces, as you expand into cloud services, as you look at next-gen technologies, all of those, again, add to the level of risk. And the biggest risk we see when we look at the technology surface is when people live in what we call uh, I'll just call it the two worlds, and um, you, you integrate or you build some new technology capacity, but you don't uh, what we call deprecate or retire your old systems. And so you are now running legacy systems and new systems side by side. And it is in that scenario where we see people running very, very old stuff and very, very new stuff, doing a very slow transition process is where we see a lot of the highest risk uh, that we are most worried about from the public safety perspective. Question? Uh, yeah, you make, a, you make a great point about um, multiple areas of vulnerability, especially because probably most of the people in the room, their system is connected to a state system, et cetera. Um, one thing to add on to that, last week, for example, a, an emergency management firm, I'm a, I'm a consultant, not my firm, but uh, um, was hacked with a, uh, in this particular case, a brute force hack. And 
the reason I bring it up is because they do a lot of American Rescue Plan grant management um, for emergency management districts, which means their data that they're holding includes intake data of applicants that have their names, addresses, social security numbers, copies of bills to prove residency, et cetera. So all things that obviously nobody wants getting out. So just to bring it one step further, not only do you probably have to worry about your own systems and those linked to you, but any contractor that you may hire, you need to, you need to, and I see it all the time now, in requests for proposals, we will now be asked for what are our safety precautions, what are our cyber capabilities, et cetera. So just put this one more thing on you. <laughs> no, I, th I thank you for that, and I appreciate that input. And it does remind me, when I talk about attack surface and something I neglect to add sometimes when I do these presentations is I'm talking about the technology attack surface, but you have a people attack surface and you hit one of the, the points well, your vendors, your contractors, your volunteers, other people that you are giving access to your network or your data, you assume those risks as well. And so you have not just a duty, but a responsibility to ensure that all your people and technology surface is is following the, the preferred rules of cybersecurity and IT security that are established by your agency. And so if we look at some particularly interesting public safety incidents, uh, there was uh, a few law enforcement departments, uh, we'll say in an unnamed part of the US, uh, that purchased body-worn cameras from a website based in China. Instead of going through normal procurement processes, they found them much cheaper. Uh, on, a, on a slightly sketchy website, purchased them from there. Turns out the body horn cameras were pre-infected with malware and were sending data back to China. The DC Metro Police, uh, I'm sure we all are familiar, have a variety of surveillance cameras all around town to do a variety of things that they do. Uh, it turns out that they are not often monitored very well, and so a large swath of cameras were knocked out by a ransomware incident that no one was aware of. Uh, until the Secret Service, we're prepping for a presidential event, uh, saw that the cameras are online and had to completely uh, change their game plan for that day uh, to compensate for the camera outages. Uh, in Alaska, there were public safety personnel who were responding to an active shooter incident. Uh, they were coordinating all the response using unencrypted radio channels. Uh, the media was listening and tipped off, and they were actually able to arrive on scene before any public safety professionals were. Uh, there was an individual, an individual in New York City uh, who got a hold of a police radio and used it to broadcast fake uh, uh, announcements. Uh, this actually caused so much confusion and chaos, uh, it actually led to uh, misinformation being spread on the internet, which led to threats against law enforcement, for instance, that had not happened at all. And finally, there was a teenager, just a, a bored young person, messing around on the internet and figured out a way to, to create a, a URL, so just a, a web address that when you clicked on it, would repeatedly call 911. Uh, and he decided, this person, to blast it out on Twitter just to see what would happen. And so it caused a huge, uh, what we call denial of service attack on 911 centers uh, using uh, voice over IP services. All you had to do was click the link and it would just generate 100 phone calls immediately to 911. And again, this is not a motivated, government-backed nation-state person. This is a bored 14-year-old just messing around on the internet. And so ransomware in particular, it's probably one of the greatest threats that we are seeing uh, impacting the public safety space. And so I won't harp on these, but you might be familiar, Baltimore, their CAD system uh, was hit with a major cyber attack uh, causing outages and issues. Atlanta was hit with a widespread attack that knocked dozens of city services offline. Uh, Alabama was also hit with a very widespread attack uh, through one city, impacting all fire and police services. Uh, Port of San Diego was also hit, uh, and San Francisco Municipal Transportation System uh, was also hit, causing outages and delays. And so suffice to say, I think I've painted a reasonable picture of uh, the, the trend we're moving in and uh, why, why there is concern, particularly with these disruptive cyber incidents. And so one of the things we're trying to encourage is to treat, do you have a question? Let's go back to my next question. I want to go back to the slides where people want to make. Can you help me understand for layman how the bad guys are hid? Is it guys also a reaction mode? Is there any way to guide your professional insult and prevent the cyber attacks? Or 
pipeline, how can they guy always be to get in, shut everything down, shut the government down, shut business down, etc. Good guys are trying to play catch up. No, that's a really good point. We are continually trying to play catch up. Uh, the reality is, and you know, this quote is used a lot with uh, counterterrorism operations. Uh, we have to be right every day. They only have to be right once, right? And so cyber is the same thing. Uh, you, you'll hear about an attack when it's successful. You won't hear that the state of Virginia, for example, is attacked a million times a day every single day, multiple millions of times a day every single day. Uh, we are bombarded with attacks. Your networks are very likely bombarded with attacks hundreds if not thousands of times every single day. They're just not successful. And so there's a numbers game in this in that they just have to find one vulnerability, one leaked password, one person using password as their password, uh, which does happen, uh, one person with an old account that was never deactivated or removed, uh, or one uh, misconfigured cloud service that was not set up properly uh, to be successful. Bad guys are really good at automating this. They have tools and services that they use. There are people who build tools and give them to other bad guys to use. So there's an entire infrastructure network business process behind malicious hacking that we are all victimized by. Our ability as good guys to counteract that um, is it's growing. It's, we, we try our best for sure. Uh, to me, and we'll talk about it uh, later in this presentation, it's really about getting away from stopping cyber attacks. Just like we wouldn't build a wall to stop a hurricane, maybe we need to stop trying to build walls to stop cyber attacks and instead start thinking about how we can be more resilient to withstand the attacks when they do eventually occur. And that's not to say we don't, uh, that's not to say we stop cybersecurity, uh, but start thinking about both sides of the equation uh, versus just one. And so one of the ways we're trying to get there, it was a perfect segue actually, is uh, cyber threats as a hazard. And so I don't think this is too far of a stretch for anyone to think, uh, and sometimes we see this mistakenly listed as just cybersecurity as a hazard. And that's something we're trying to kind of nip in the bud now because cybersecurity itself is not a hazard. Cybersecurity is the practice of securing systems. And so we don't want to think of security as the hazard, but rather the threats that take advantage of it being those hazards we have to consider. There is a lot of um, alignment in how we address traditional hazards and how IT people address technology hazards. And so on the left, you see this hierarchy of controls that's defined for health and safety. It's defined by the US National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health uh, and how you mitigate a hazard to life or health in a business place, in an operating facility, in a manufacturing uh, plant, uh, in a power plant, whatever that happens to be. On the right side, you see the cybersecurity hierarchy controls, the same process that we go through. So we work to address human actions on the cybersecurity side. That is the lowest form of security. Training users is the minimum bare bones, lowest level of security we can do. The highest level, just like we want to do with traditional hazards, is to mitigate them, is to lessen the effects or eliminate them from happening altogether. That's the same outlook uh, from both sides of the equation, but we just don't see a lot of shared responsibility or shared resourcing from the IT side and the emergency management side, even though you guys are working on the same basic framework. We, uh, in Virginia, uh, as part of our cyber response plan, have actually put into practice aligning the emergency management cycle with what we call the NIST cybersecurity framework. So the NIST cybersecurity framework is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, framework. It is the de facto standard for all federal agencies. It is, in fact, the standard that Virginia uh, VITA, their state IT agency, uses for cybersecurity as well. Uh, we, uh, I wish I can say that I was so smart and clever to realize these two go together, uh, but when you put them side by side, despite the colors not being perfectly aligned, they basically look the same. And so uh, this is not revolutionary, but it's just identifying, again, the similarities in the frameworks and the way we do work. And so in Virginia, we have aligned these in the way we do cyber to be proactive, to stop incidents, to continue to build resilience so we can reduce the impacts, to increase our ability to respond and to provide response services. And one of the biggest gaps that we're looking to address is recovery. And this is where I think emergency managers have the greatest uh, spot to fill is that from an IT perspective, there's very weak focus on recovery, on getting 
back to steady state, getting back to operational status. Uh, emergency managers, you guys live for that. You guys know how that works. You know all about working the recovery process, short-term, long-term funding, all these things. We don't do that in IT. When, when something breaks, we fix it, and then we push it to someone else, and it's someone else's problem is long-term recovery. Uh, but there's an opportunity to better, I'm gonna borrow a private sector, horrible word, but synergize these two efforts um, so we can have more shared resources. And the other thing we're doing is we're, we're uh, again, I talked about it before, but rethinking or, or moving away from security uh, towards more of a resilience model. And so I sometimes when I talk about this, uh, someone says, well, Chris, that already exists. It's called business continuity, uh, and it fills all those gaps, and you're just reinventing the wheel. And I usually respond by saying, let's go fight in the parking lot, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. <laughs> and so when I talk about it, I always say, Business continuity is great. It, it, increases, it incorporates information technology, emergency management, and operational concepts. There's no consideration for security in the business continuity concept. So instead, what we're trying to push is organizational resilience. So we're not ignoring security. We're not ignoring continuity. Instead, we're building it into a much larger concept of organizational resilience, which is our ability to adapt and change with the environment. You guys did this with COVID. You do it with a variety of disasters and emergencies already. There's no reason why we can't do it for cyber. And so we are building this as a bit of continuity, a bit of consequence management, so dealing with those disruptive impacts from a cyber incident, and a little bit of resilience, adaptable, changeable mindsets. We're also leveraging FEMA's whole community approach. And the first time I saw this, I just thought it was the perfect description of how, what we're trying to do from a cybersecurity perspective. We are trying to drive shared understanding of community needs and capabilities for cybersecurity. We're trying to engage with localities. We're trying to engage with emergency managers. We're trying to grow and empower uh, the ability of integration of resources in communities. So we're trying to build resources and services at the state level, but we're having conversations on how we can build services regionally, how we can have localities helping localities with cyber incidents, how we can bring in our academic and university partners to help out with cyber incidents. And we have a big focus on social infrastructure. IT, uh, cybersecurity, is traditionally been dealt with as an IT problem. It's a technology problem. It's technology, people who have to solve it. It's the nerds. And we're going to solve it with more technology. The numbers show it doesn't work. The numbers continue to go in the wrong direction. And so I am convinced that cybersecurity and disruptive cyber incidents is not truly a technology problem. It is a people problem. We must solve it through investment in people and resources. And so we are looking to not just build technology infrastructure, but more specifically build social infrastructure in the way we do cybersecurity, to bring more partners to the table, to participate, discuss, and share resources. And so if you are interested in how you can start um, bridging cybersecurity emergency management, some of the things that you can do uh, today, next week, uh, maybe next year, if you're on a long vacation. Um, what can you do? How can you start embracing this? Chris, you've been Jim yibber yabbering on for all this time. What the heck do I do now? First, you want to have a discussion with your leadership. If you are leadership, then you need to have a discussion with your peers and your uh, agency. But suffice to say, you don't have leadership buy-in in how you can start bringing cybersecurity people and emergency management people together. It will not work. It will fail. You want to make it cybersecurity a discussion topic. Talk about it in emergency management perspective. Talk about it in your meetings, in your huddles, in your all hands, whatever that happens to be. Start adding a bullet point for cybersecurity. Even if no one has anything to say, just having it there, just having it present in your mind starts building that awareness. Don't force it. There are some agencies, there are some cultures where this kind of blending of cyber and emergency management may just not work. You may just not be either ready for it, it may not fit your mission, your purpose, your goals, and that's fine. You don't want to force it, you want to grow it as a cultural concept over time. And you don't want to assume it's not going to happen. I've talked to some localities who think, uh, you know, we're good. It's, not good, you know, it's not a problem we have to worry about, it's not really a threat we're concerned with, uh, and I don't think that's a fair reality. And so we often warn uh, cybersecurity incidents, particularly disruptive incidents, are not a matter of if, they are a matter of when. They will happen, you will be impacted. Uh, 
And so what else can you do? You can look for ways to make it official. And so you can look for opportunities to develop cross-training between your cyber and emergency management. I gave this same presentation uh, for uh, a group called the VA SCAN, which I forget what it stands for, but it's a bunch of IT people from universities all over Virginia. Uh, and I gave the same presentation, but swap emergency management with academic IT people. And so they, uh, they took uh, some of this action. I met with a couple universities afterwards, uh, and they just started having meetings uh, where they had someone from the IT team or cybersecurity team sit in on some of the emergency management meetings just so they can bring that extra bit of awareness. And then they did the opposite. They had an emergency manager sitting in on some of the IT meetings and some of the technology meetings that were going on. And it actually opened a whole bunch of conversations that they weren't having because they thought they had nothing in common. They thought they didn't do the same thing at all. And so it turned out that there was a lot to learn. And so now we're seeing universities and K-12 systems starting to build hybrid uh, policies and plans, plans that are both IT, uh, business continuity, and emergency management, and starting to push them all together. You also want to look for opportunities to designate people. I'm a really big fan of like strike team, task force type model, where you get a small group of people uh, and you have them work towards something. And so if you can find people to designate as your cyber person, uh, that goes a long way, and vice versa. If you can work with your uh, IT people and have someone designated as their emergency management person, uh, a lot of people like that. It's an extra laurel on your shoulder. It's an extra builder, uh, building block on your resume. It's a new door, a new area you get to experience, you get to learn, you get to build skills in. And so that goes a long way as well. Um, we wanna make sure that we have considerations for cybersecurity in emergency management planning. And so we do encourage everyone to have some kind of incident response plan. Uh, and we typically, when we sit down with localities, we look to, we are encouraging them to make sure their incident response plan for cyber is aligned to their emergency management plan. And so make sure they're using the same language, the same frameworks, the same concepts. We even encourage people to use, temp use the same templates, use the same contact lists, make the two documents as similar as possible. We also encourage uh, joint drills, tabletops, and exercises. So if emergency managers are doing an exercise, invite an IT person or a cyber person, vice versa. If cyber or IT people are doing tabletops or exercises, see if an emergency manager can sit on it, sit in on it, even just to listen and get involved on in the planning process even. But there are such huge opportunities to bring that extra knowledge to the problem space. Do not be afraid to call for backup. And so emergency managers, I am not asking you to be IT experts. I'm not asking you to cross that line into nerd world with me. It's fine. You, st you can stay on that side, and I'll, I'll continue jumping the line back and forth. Um, but I don't need you nor expect you to be IT experts. If you want to go down that road, I can send you some training if you really want to do that. Uh, but you probably don't, because I don't even like it. So my recommendation is, again, think for ways to start bridging that gap collaboratively. There's a really interesting statistic, uh, and it came from a report from Accenture. And they polled a bunch of public safety leaders, so police, fire, EMS leaders, emergency managers, and then they polled a bunch of IT leaders for those same local governments. And when they asked, how confident are you in your IT network's ability to withstand or recover from a cyber attack? 66% of public safety leaders were confident that their network was ready to withstand a cyber attack. Only 27% of the IT leaders were equally confident in their own networks. And so we call this the confidence gap. We are operating on infrastructure that we think is good, and it's probably nowhere near as good as we think. This is not a public safety problem, it's really an IT problem. It exists in many other sectors. But suffice to say, we need to start having conversations around IT and emergency management, make sure you are communicating, you know each other, you are sharing information. If you find yourself having to talk to someone about IT, or if you find yourself having to help someone with IT, uh, I created this for um, one locality in particular that I was talking to who just said, I just wanna know 10 questions to ask my IT staff so I know that things are okay. And so this is, I went one step better, I dropped it to nine questions. These are nine questions that are phrased as yes or no. You can go to any IT shop you work with, 
You can do it with a vendor. You can do it with a contractor. Just ask these nine questions. Uh, if you get a yes for every single question, that's A plus 100. You're in great shape. If you get a no for every question, you should be in fear for your life because something is horribly wrong with the technology you're talking about. And so these are, you'll probably, realities, you'll get a lot of yes, but, or no, but. And that's fine because that opens dialogue, opens conversation. But the point here is, again, you don't need to be IT experts. You just need to know some of the right questions you can ask. Some tips for working with IT. I've sat on both sides, and I'm sure there are plenty of people who are like that that Chris, he's so freaking annoying with his technology and his nerdy stuff. And I get it, IT people can be hard to work with. I'm sure I have been hard to work with in the past. Uh, and so I, I leave you with some of these tips on how to best engage. And the number one is understand that IT people usually serve a variety of customers and partners. And so in the emergency management space, oftentimes uh, you may engage with IT as a form of an emergency. We need this now because we're dealing with a flood, a hurricane, a storm, or whatever. Uh, and so just understand that they recognize that and they understand it, uh, but they have processes that don't always jive with the way emergency managers work. And so you, there has to be a little bit of patience and a little bit of understanding. Another thing to think about is that IT groups tend to be very solution-oriented. They're really focused on what's the end product? What are you trying to get to? And so when you over-articulate what it is that you want, it usually, usually uh, ends up in you not getting what you want at all. Uh, and so we always recommend uh, just focus on stating the problem when you're working with IT. If you're putting in a ticket, if you're making a request, if you're trying to get new tools or technology, really focus on just the end state. What is, it, what is the problem you're trying to solve uh, and what, do you, what would you like it to do? Uh, we always discourage what we call solutioneering where you, you focus too much on building the solution yourself and then handing that to technologists because uh, they hate that and it just doesn't work with their mindsets. And so instead, uh, focus on the problem space, what, you're, what problem you're trying to solve, uh, and then work with them to get to that solution. Uh, something that I always encourage people who do any kind of engagement with IT, um, even internally for your own agencies, is make sure you have something called a service level agreement, an SLA. And so this is basically an agreement between you and IT to say, if I have a high severity issue, or if my ArcGIS system is down, or if our CAD system is down, it has to be back up in 72 hours. Non-negotiable, that's what we need to do. We regularly do this with vendors, contractors, outside partners. We set up these agreements ahead of time because we're typically paying them. But there's nothing that prohibits you from setting up these expectations with IT people you work with every day. And finally, I want to say, don't be afraid to challenge IT people. Uh, they're often interested in innovative solutions, uh, but they can be quick to say no. <laughs> and so don't take no for an answer if it doesn't work for you. Uh, don't be afraid to push back. Don't be afraid to ask why or how or how can we do it differently or what can we change in this request to get there. And so in Virginia, what we've been building out, it was kind of a weird visualization, uh, but how we are kind of having our cyber and emergency management functions sort of flow right now. And so what we have are simply two separate battle rhythms. We have our emergency managers who are doing their normal emergency management stuff. And on the top, we have our cybersecurity people who are doing their normal cybersecurity stuff. Now, typically, they operate generally uh, in parallel but separate, but they're designed to converge when there's a major incident. So you could have an incident uh, I was going to say Colonial Pipeline, that's a horrible example. You could have a really small cyber incident uh, that really doesn't have any physical, real-world impacts, no cascading impacts, nothing. Could be just a, a small business hit with ransomware, could be um, a locality dealing with a very small incident. Our cybersecurity teams can swoop in, provide help, provide services, will notify emergency managers so that they're aware of what's going on, uh, but the cyber team will just keep working. Uh, but if we do have a significantly disruptive incident, our cyber and emergency managers, uh, based on the cyber incident response plan that we've been building, will basically converge together, and they'll work an incident jointly. And so you can almost think of cyber, uh, I always compare it to kind of a special operations group, uh, for lack of a better word, similar to hazmat or search and rescue, where our cyber people, we, we have a whole cadre of cyber people from different state agencies and other partners, they surge together to solve the problem, they do it under the guise of the larger emergency management infrastructure. 
Uh, this way, our emergency managers are dealing with those cascading impacts, and they're getting the relevant updates and information needed from the cyber team. And then they, they once they're done, they dissipate back into the wind or wherever the nerds go to. And so we are running these two uh, you know, parallel processes right now. The reason we do it this way is that, number one, our cybersecurity people can bring some interesting skills. They bring experience with security and technology to the table for certain types of incidents, but they also bring shared situational awareness. So they are, will be continually updating emergency management on what's going on from the cyber perspective, uh, but they'll be doing it in a very plain language way. Likewise, we expect our emergency managers to bring to the table concepts around resilience and process management. So we're following the right processes, documenting things the right way, reporting to the right peers and partners. Uh, and then we'll also leverage our emergency managers for coordination uh, so they can help navigate multiple work streams, multiple state agencies, all involved in an incident. Uh, emergency management will have that high level view over the entire situation. And so I'll talk a little bit about how we're doing this in Virginia. So we have uh, a group that does significant uh, incident coordination. Uh, this is uh, kind of built in collaboration with state police, uh, VDEM, National Guard, and VITA. Uh, it's all documented in our cyber incident response plan, which is also known as the cyber annex. You may hear it called that. Uh, but essentially what we do is uh, incidents come in, we notify our partners, we spin up all the resources, and it's really meant to be a one-stop shop. You don't have to notify FBI, then DHS, then maybe Secret Service, then state police, then maybe your local law enforcement. Uh, if you notify the state, we help push that information out to all the key people who need to go. We even will leverage our regional staff to reach back out to a local emergency manager if an incident happens in your jurisdiction and you're not aware. So the other thing, and one of the most critical components of what we built is that the state, <laughs> the state does not come in and take over. The state does not tell you uh, exactly what you have to do. They do not touch anything. You don't allow them to touch or do anything they don't allow you to do. The impacted entity remains the lead decision maker, uh, incident commander, for lack of a better word, uh, throughout the incident. And so we provide advisory services. We can provide hands-on support. Uh, we can tap into federal partners. We can tap into uh, NGOs that are involved. Uh, we can tap into other state agencies, uh, but we all do it under the guise of what do you need? What can we get you? So just the way emergency managers do resourcing requests, we are doing that for cybersecurity services as well. And so if you were, were at the, one of the opening keynotes uh, where Sean Talmadge was talking about cyber, I think he used this slide or a variation of it, uh, but to show you how this framework essentially looks and put into practice, uh, it doesn't matter where an incident is reported from. It can come through VDAM, it can come through a local emergency manager to a regional emergency manager. It can come directly through the fusion center, come through local law enforcement. We get reports from all over the place. We also monitor for reports. So sometimes we might notify you that you've had an incident and you don't know about it yet. Um, but suffice to say, no matter where the report comes in, we centralize it to that uh, shared awareness between VDEM and the Fusion Center. And then based on the level of response needed, we activate our statewide response partners. And those partners don't jump into every single incident. Each one is meant to be plug and play based on the nature of the incident and what is needed. So there are some incidents where we might only need Fusion Center and VITA to be participatory and that's it. There might be some incidents where we need literally everyone all hands on deck. We do this, number one, so we can get you the right resources you need. Number two, so we can better manage multiple or concurrent incidents. And so we are driving towards a reality where we would probably have multiple disruptive cyber incidents uh, that we're dealing with at the same time. And so this allows us to better spread our resources out uh, to handle that type of scenario. We also have the ability uh, to scale up even further to that third level, which we just call the incident management structure. And so essentially the cyber team plugs into the VEST, the Virginia Emergency Support Team. Sure, I don't have to tell everyone what that is. Uh, but plugs into the vest and they provide targeted cybersecurity services under the guidance of the larger emergency response. And so at the same time, all of this is not something that we just, <clears throat> excuse me, invented in a vacuum. Everything we built specifically aligns to NIMS and ICS, but it also aligns to the National Cyber Incident Response Plan that was developed by FEMA and DHS collectively. 
Um, we also align to several cybersecurity requirements, uh, but those are boring and we don't care. So I'm gonna leave you with two slides. This first one is a call to action. And so I am looking for three things from all of you. Number one, I am looking for you to seek education in this space, in this cyberspace, this nerdy space, this annoying technology space, whatever you wanna call it, it's fine with me. But continue to seek knowledge. You took the time to sit here today and listen to me prattle on. That's one awesome baby step. Keep going. Think about step number two. Second, I want to strongly encourage you to collaborate. Reach out to me, reach out to VDEM, reach out to our regional staff, reach out to state police, reach out to uh, VITA even, even though some of us don't like VITA as much. Um, <laughs> collaborate. Even more so, we are trying to help build models for collaboration at the local level. We're trying to create concepts around regional cybersecurity capability, capabilities, regional cybersecurity resourcing, uh, so that you are working with your peers, partners, and neighbors to address these risks uh, uh, before they can even scale up to a state response. Uh, and finally, uh, think about ways to engage. We are always looking for people to engage on cybersecurity grant reviews. We're looking for people to engage on training opportunities. We're looking for more opportunities to talk about the Cyber Incident Response Plan and how you can support it. We're also looking for more partners to be a part of our response. We're, we're already in conversations. I don't know if I mentioned it because I gave a presentation earlier today, uh, but um, we're in engagement with uh, universities to see if we can get them part of our response team so that it's not just state agencies, but now a university in your area can also be part of that response mechanism. Uh, and so we're looking to, for you to, to engage with us, uh, but help us identify other opportunities uh, for engagement that we may not have thought of yet. And last, uh, I do this on most, but not all of my presentations, uh, usually depends on the audience, uh, but I always like to end my presentations with a poll uh, so I can kind of figure where, where have I landed for you? And I recognize that sometimes I give a presentation and some people are like 100%, I love it, it was amazing. I recognize that sometimes you give this presentation and people are like, that was god awful, please get off the stage. And I understand everyone's got different goals, everyone's got a different background, uh, but this just helps me hone and focus and change the presentation uh, with a little bit of feedback. So from a show of hands, uh, my first group, if you feel like you really are getting what I'm putting down, you're feeling the vibe that I'm putting out there about cyber and emergency management, you're interested in how you can start thinking about or exploring ways to do this locally, regionally, wherever you are, give me a show of hands. Safe space, safe space, I don't judge. You don't have, you don't, I can, I'm from New York, I like harsh criticism, so it's fine. Number two, if you feel like you get the general idea but you're a little unsure how to put it into practice, or you think, that's all right, I'm gonna stick with normal emergency management stuff and I'm gonna leave cyber to the nerds. Raise your hand. Safe space, can't hurt me. All right. And lastly, if you feel like you just got none of this material at all, <laughs> you forgot to read the description and you thought this was a class about the electric grid, raise your hand. <laughs> Nobody, all right, well that's good. No threes is good. Um, so that concludes my presentation for you all. Thank you so much. Is that a question? So there has been, and so we recognize that it's not ideal that we have to make a full declaration to spin up resources for cyber. And in fact, when we look historically at a lot of the cyber incidents we've supported in the state, there were probably resources that were essentially left on the table because we couldn't navigate the declaration process. Um, there are larger conversations around that same issue for non-cyber incidents, for hurricanes and floods and everything else. Um, there, I, there's a little bit of traction, but it's hard to say now where that will land. Um, what we are looking to do is grow the, the number of partners that we have engaged so that we have more resources that are available outside of declarations. And so that's part of why we're trying to engage with universities in particular, have access to a lot of resources. They also have access to a lot of money. And so we're trying to bring them to the table because they can help fill some of that gap. Uh, but if there are 
better ways to approach it or different ways we can think about it, would love the ideas or input. So will it necessitate a loss of property or a loss of life? For response, no. For, for the deck, I think it would have to be the, it would not require the loss, but a certain threshold for the likelihood or possibility of the loss. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Perfect announcement. Thank you. Any other questions, comments, Mike? I don't know uh, how to ask this necessarily. The, the IT space has, is, is massive, and from a local emergency management standpoint, COOP uh, is huge. Yep. And, and, and for IT, that's a, an industry and a discipline of itself. Do you have any tools or recommendations on, on mirroring that? Because I think this, Local EMs enter in to support the cybersecurity and they're not working with that local IT who are subject matter experts in their IT community. Mm -hmm. any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, a couple. So we we just started some conversations to look at uh, the the emergency management concepts around like mission essential functions and business process analysis as a way to start bridging the gap between IT coop and other regular coop planning. Um, we're also looking at, um, uh, we reached out to DHS for help. So DHS offers um, something called the cyber, the CRR, the Cyber Resilience Review. Uh, and it's really focused on providing, the, it really fills that gap essentially of of how do you build uh, continuity of operations into IT with emergency management consideration. Um, the problem with the CRR, uh, as with the problem with many DHS resources, is that they are very limited in the number of people who can deliver it, and so anyone can request it, any of you can request it, it's free. If you're interested, let me know and I'll put you in contact with the person to do it. But last I heard, it was six months to a year to wait to get one done, because there's only like a handful of people. We have actually asked if we can get a cadre of people at the state and local level trained to do it ourselves so that we can do it on behalf of DHS instead of constantly waiting for them. They had a mixed response to that request, I'll say, uh, but we're gonna keep pushing on that. Uh, we also have a goal of eventually working with uh, VITA and state police to build our own cyber resilience kind of assessment process. So we'll be able to send a team of people at the state or local level again to sit down and help you build a COOP concept that includes IT and emergency management together. No other questions. Well, thank you everyone for coming. Uh, it was really fun. Uh, my contact information's up here. I have business cards. If you ever want to harass me or bother me about anything technology related, I am here for you. Thank you.